hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. In this week's episode, we're picking up where we left off last week, with Lisa Cron and I disagreeing about backstory. Here's a bit of a reminder for you. For me, from what you're saying, it seems like backstory is the space between words. It's so often the things that are unsaid, you know, in the exposition of a novel. It's in why the character does something and it's there, the tension is there, the the way they're behaving is authentic, but it's not something that the writer is putting on the page in in terms of of words. I really disagree with you. (laughs) I think that's a big mistake. The words need to be there. They're in the main character or protagonist's head as they make sense of it. It's not in the silence. Let's hear the rest of what Lisa has to say about backstory. I was working with a writer who said, I want to see what you're talking about, this backstory and internality. She was reading Sharp Objects, you know, Gillian Flynn. She said, I'm halfway through Sharp Objects and I've I've highlighted 60. That's 6-0% of it. It is on the page. Take out the highlighter. The reason you can't pants or plot forward or do, and I'm thinking probably the way you see people do things really poorly, is that 
they start writing backstory and as they're writing it, they're making it up. <laughs> you know, I mean, they've gotten you right there into what's happening. And now they're going, oh, wait, why? And what's going on? Backstory is something that needs to be written as completely and with most writers, especially beginning writers, more deeply than what they would think would be in the narrative itself, because it is there. It is in that struggle. It is. I think of story often as the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking when we say it. Stories about what we're really thinking. That needs to be on the page. We need to know what they're thinking. We need to know what happened before and why and the meaning they're reading into. Yeah, but do we have to lay it out? The author knows what the character's backstory is. They know what the motivation is. We see the character behaving in a certain way. We see them having like these moments of flashback to something. But tension is created when we sometimes don't know why the character is behaving the way they do. And so that backstory doesn't have to be in the first five chapters. Sometimes what keeps us turning the pages is waiting to see why they've gotten to this point, why they think the way they do, why their misbelief is the way it is. I mean, certainly there are things we read forward to find out. You're absolutely right about that, 100%. The reason talking to writers, it, it scares me to say something like that, is because writers are often told, hold it back for a reveal later. Don't let them know what it really is, and they'll want to read forward to find out. Now, while there's some truth to that in the way that, that you mean it, what writers tend to do is hold so much back that they flatten the story. In other words, we don't even know that there's tension about something. They tend to withhold the very information that would pull us in to begin with. For me, it's like yeah. a trail of breadcrumbs. It's not just withholding and withholding and withholding for right. this big reveal. You drop a clue mm -hmm. here, something in their inner monologue reveal something and you go, oh, what happened in their childhood that this happened? And then you keep reading and then you reveal something else. The problem is, is that when writers are writing with the audience in mind, they screw up. It's never a good idea to do that because then it's like, I'm withholding this because I don't want the reader to know. And then their whole thing is like about sort of tricking the reader. And the biggest problem with that, one of them anyway, is that they have characters not talking about or thinking about what they totally normally or naturally would think about in that moment because they don't want to give it away to the reader. And my advice always is when you're first writing and you're doing a first draft, which I think takes, I, I don't mean ever pantsing or plotting, give it all away. Don't hold anything back. Overwrite even. You can, oh, that's what the delete key is for later. But the problem is often when they don't put it there, it's because they haven't even developed it because they don't even know what it is. You know, it shocks me with pantsers the way they're going, I'm pantsing my way through a murder mystery. It's like, what? You're going to have somebody solve a crime you don't even know what it is yet? How could you do that? I see it so much. And that makes them think that somehow they're, they're, they're luring the reader in. And it alienates the reader because when things are held back and we can see they're purposely being held back, it pisses us off. We're like, you're toying with me. I don't want you to toy with me. You really want to get it onto the page because the reader, you can give it all away in the very beginning. It's like the first line of that uh, Elizabeth George novel uh, called What Came Before He Shot Her. The first line is, Joel Campbell, age 11 at the time, began his descent toward murder with a bus ride. She gave it all away. She gave what was going to happen. The interesting thing is the novel in the version, uh, I read a, a paperback version, the murder in question doesn't happen until page 600. Nobody else gets killed. And it's never mentioned again. Never mentioned from that moment on. If you'd redacted that first sentence, I don't think you would have read the book because you'd have no idea where it was going or what the point was. 
Yes. I mean, I, I remember speaking at a uh, SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators Conference, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a couple of years ago. And there was an editor there. I think it was Jill Santapolo, who was also speaking, brilliant editor. And she said, um, she said her mentor in college said to her, the first paragraph is a promise you make to your reader. This is where we're going. This is what it's going to be about. And writers, the problem is like, like they'll, they'll take what you just said and they'll take it to such a degree that we have no idea what's even going on because any bit of it would give it all away. And my feeling always is give it all away. Don't hold things back for reveal. Let us, and we want to know what's going on. We want to know the why. It's not a, oh my God, we're going to get to this place. And now we know why they did it sometimes for sure. But what we're really looking for is when are they going to realize what's holding them back? Where is that going to go? How is that raging mess on the inside going to be soothed, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, I once had a, a student at UCLA. She said, she said, I know on the surface I look put together, but inside I'm a raging mess and I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. Stories about the raging mess, you don't want to keep that off the page. And that's what writers tend to do. And when we find out later what was going on, it's like, I didn't know that. So there was no tension and I had no idea what was driving that person. I didn't know the meaning they were really reading into it. So, so I probably wouldn't even get to that place. So in your book, Story Genius, you talk about how everything we taught about writing is wrong, and we've been discussing that so far. But here's the interesting part. You use Fifty Shades of Grey to underscore your point. And I'm really interested to know why. And the only reason I did that, to tell you the truth, is because... It is a book that so many people read. I mean, when I quoted the statistic in 2015, before any of the movies had come out, it, it had sold 125 million copies. I mean, 125 million copies, and yet everybody was saying it's really poorly written, which, which it certainly is. But it pulled people in, again, because of, I think, the story part was pulling us in. The what Anastasia still was struggling with. We were inside her head, inside her struggling with something from the get-go. I would never use that to like actually teach because it really is actually a pretty, you know, not great. It isn't well-written, um, but that's really what was pulling us in. She doesn't want to go. I mean, it, we also do get her backstory again, as I recall. Didn't she have a mother who either died or was weird and her stepfather had taken care of her and she doesn't really want to go with Christian Grey and he's got some mysterious past that keeps him, you know, unable to actually commit. But again, it wasn't the good writing. It, it's horribly written. And the point I was using it for in Story Genius is that if good writing is what the brain craved, then how could 125 million people buy that book? Brain doesn't crave good writing at all. The brain craves story craves being pulled in. It, it craves go, going right into whose story is it? What's at stake? Why does it matter to that person? Another big mistake that writers make is that they think for us to like a character or to make them likable, it means that they have to be somebody who would never do anything that they couldn't do in polite society. You know, they're perfect in that sort of very boring, very bland, polite society way. And it could not be less true. I think what makes a character likable is I've heard people say they've got to be accessible. Now, to me, that's just as, as vague as, as likable. They have to be vulnerable. We have to see where they're vulnerable. That's how even the most 
seemingly surfaced unlikable characters become likable and pull us in in the way that we're interested in them because we can see where they're vulnerable. We can see where they're unsure. We can see where they're wrong. And, you know, and those are the things that really, you know, pull us pull us in. That, that's what we want. Without that, you don't have anything. And the, the only way to do that is to go in and first create your protagonist based on, you know, I mean, the first thing to say very quickly, you figure out is what's your point? What are you saying about human nature? What are you writing about? Why does this really matter to you? You know, getting this onto the page, first thing to do when you've got some, you know, basic idea, then you create that what if, here's what my protagonist wants, here's what it's going to cost them to get it. Think of it this way. Story is an emotional cost benefit analysis of taking a particular course of action. That's what it is. So a what if is that moral crux? I want to do this in order to do it. It's going to cost me that. What the character wants they can't just go after it there's this thing that tugs in the other direction the thing it's going to cost them and to know what it's going to cost them only way you can know that is to go into their past and then you start with okay who is that character before the story starts before they have any idea the dark and stormy night that you have in store for them or that they've probably brought on themselves you know what are they afraid of not a big long thing again not a you know what are they afraid of what do they want how do they see that next year of their lives because it's probably not going to be what they're envisioning because you have something else in mind and then and then you would go back to the okay well what do they want well well what is their misbelief and then you'd go even further back to the okay where did that misbelief come from Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us in today's show and giving us your take on backstory. We'll now be moving on to our other guest who has a slightly different take on it. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or... The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
and then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. She is the USA Today and number one international bestselling author of The Marsh King's Daughter, a psychological suspense novel set in Michigan's Upper Peninsula Wilderness, published by G.P. Putnam Sons in the U.S. and in 25 other languages. Her next psychological suspense novel, The Wicked Sister, published in August of this year to much acclaim. She's been active in the writing community for over 20 years and served on the board of directors of the International Thriller Writers. It's my pleasure to welcome Karen Dion. Karen, it's so wonderful having you on the show. I'm a huge fan of yours. I absolutely adored The Marsh King's Daughter, and I was lucky enough to get The Wicked Sister early on as well, and I absolutely loved that. So you are a masterful storyteller, and so I would like for us to dive into backstory today. You wrote a phenomenal article called Weaving in Seamless Backstory for Writer's Digest that has now been published in their anthology of articles, and it's something that I actually refer most most of my students too, when teaching backstory. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm really excited to be part of your program. And backstory is a subject that I'm very excited to talk about because basically I had to learn how to handle backstory in my novels the hard way. And, you know, the article in uh, Writer's Digest magazine goes into part of that, how I front-loaded my first novel that sold. It was an environmental thriller. Uh, it opens with a character on a, on a tugboat. He's, he's off the coast of Newfoundland, and they're going to tow an iceberg to shore. And it's a very dramatic scene. I felt like the reader needed to know who he was, why he was on the ship, what he was hoping to accomplish. And my agent, who is a very good editor, flagged all those instances. And he said, no, just start with the character. Just start with the story. The reader will figure it out gradually why he's on the ship. And so when I did that, I thought it was so interesting because much later when the novel was finished and I sent it out to best-selling thriller authors I know for possible endorsements, Doug Preston wrote that it was one of the best first chapters he'd ever read. And there was no backstory in it whatsoever. So I don't think he would have had that reaction to the first version that I did. And, you know, it's an ongoing process because I interviewed a couple of authors for that article. And one of them, Jamie Ford, whose novel Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, you know, New York Times bestseller, did fabulously well. He said that he struggles with backstory and his editor is often flagging instances of backstory in the opening of his novel. And I love that it's been a process of trial and error because I feel like when you're studying writing, you can learn all this theory and you'll be told this is how you should do it or this is how you do it. But for me, it's also very much been a process of trial and error and perhaps loading down the front with backstory and then in subsequent revisions in the second and third draft, realizing how much of it, A, is actually completely unnecessary and can be taken out of the novel entirely, and B, how much of it can be moved much further out in the story and revealed in bits and pieces rather than in this big chunk in the beginning. I completely agree with that. And the thing is, I on occasion read manuscripts for new writers, not so much recently, but over the years I've read a lot. And when a novel doesn't engage me, you know, I look at why. And it's usually because there's just too much backstory in, in the beginning of the book. And what is happening, this is my belief, what's happening is the author is finding the story. They're grounding themselves in the story. They're figuring out what's the backstory of the character. 
and they're putting this on paper. That's not a problem as long as, like you say, they go back and take it out again later. Because if you think about like when you meet someone at a party, you don't want to know their whole history right away. <laughs> you're, you're just sharing something in the moment. Maybe they drop in an interesting tidbit, like, you know, they were a skydiving instructor or something. And then if you're interested, you'll ask more, right? So it's the same with a reader beginning a novel. There's very little that they need to know to understand the story, especially if the story opens in a kind of a cinematic way. When we're watching a film, we don't question, well, wait a minute, how did that character get in the desert or on the mountaintop? We just accept it because we're seeing it in front of our eyes. And so it's the same in writing. Immerse the reader in the story, and as you say, feather in those essential bits of backstory later in the novel. We've just spoken about first drafts and how backstory for beginner writers is a way for them to find their way into the story, to understand the character better. When it comes to that, is that how you get to know your characters by just kind of writing it up front? Or what is your belief on character charts or on character profiles? Are those the kind of things that you complete? Do you find them useful? How do you get to know your character's backstory before you begin writing? Or do you find it out as you're writing? Well, in, in my breakout novel, The Marsh King's Daughter, the character came to me fully formed in the middle of the night. <laughs> I woke up the first sentences of what is now the novel. It fully formed in my head. And the sentences were, if I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. J.C. Dugard, Amanda Berry, Elizabeth Smart, that kind of thing though my mother was none of them. And so I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. So this character is the daughter of a kidnapped girl and a man who took her. And in the morning, I wrote a few more paragraphs in her voice, telling a little bit more about herself, how she grew up in this isolated cabin on a ridge surrounded by marsh or swamp in Michigan's Upper Peninsula wilderness. And that's now the first page of the novel. So for me, I was almost, I was channeling the character. I was finding out her history in more specific detail as I wrote the book, yes. I tend to think that's more unusual. In my subsequent novel, The Wicked Sister, I really didn't know who the character was. I knew what her situation was. I knew that she would have the firm belief that she had accidentally killed her mother and father uh, with a shotgun when she was 11, and she was suffering from the grief from that. But exactly who she was and what she was going to be, I found her by the actual writing. I, I'm very lazy. I hate character charts and, you know, lists of what their likes and dislikes are. I like to find it out as I'm writing. That said, I started that novel 28 times before I found the groove. So it's not necessarily a productive way to begin writing. But by the time I really settled into the character and knew who she was, yeah, then the writing went fast. I'm the same. Characters come to me sometimes fully formed if you're really lucky, other times not. But I found out who they are while I'm writing. And I remember Terry McMillan said this, uh, you know, the author of How Stella Got Her Groove Back. She said that she will begin writing a character that she doesn't necessarily like when she begins the book. And if she doesn't like them by the end of the book, she hasn't done her job as an author. So she gets to know them as she's writing and she gets to really empathize with them. But at the same time, I know that character charts can be useful because sometimes they prompt a question that an emerging writer wouldn't have thought about. And it makes them go, oh, wait a minute, why why would they have chosen this career? What led them down this path? So I think in that way, character charts can be useful, but I'm the same as you. 
I don't sit and fill out a 20-page form to figure out who this character is. Can you just give us a definition of what backstory is in your mind and the kind of techniques you use when giving the reader backstory? I would define backstory as the character's history and the other story elements that underlie the situation at the start of the book. So it's all the things that came before. Yes, it explains who the character is, why they are acting the way they are in the beginning, but it's not shown. It it underlies the story. And the problem with putting too much of that actual backstory in the opening is that every instance of backstory, by definition, it takes the story backwards. You immerse the reader in the topic and you get them interested. And then it's like holding up a finger and saying, wait, wait, no, before I tell you the rest, I have to tell you, you know, how the character came to this conclusion back in her past when she was whatever. And so that's why it's pretty much death to forward momentum in a story. Maybe that's too strong a statement because there are, of course, always exceptions in in how things are handled. But for the most part, backstory comes out in bits and pieces when it's really necessary. When it's germane to the story, you know, when it's essential, uh, you can weave it in in different ways, uh, depending on how you're writing the book. If it's first person, obviously your character is going to maybe say something in in an aside, like that wasn't the first time I did such and such. You know, I have a long history of putting my foot in my mouth. That's all you have to say. You know, just feather it in a little bit at a time instead of going on and on. That's a great example. Um, And other ones are things like, let's talk about flashback, weaving in backstory through a flashback. Well, that can be done effectively. And this is where I say you can't make a hard and fast rule and say no backstory in a novel. Flashbacks can serve a purpose in particular kind of story. In The Marsh King's Daughter, I use a lot of flashbacks. In fact, an early reader of the novel who was very, very excited about it was the author David Morrell. Maybe you know him. He's Canadian. <laughs> he is the creator of the character Rambo. He wrote First Blood, but he was also a professor of English in, for many years in Iowa University. So he really knows his stuff. He read The Marsh King's Daughter and he loved it. And he said, but I broke so many rules. He says with the, the tense shifts and he says, God knows how many flashbacks. <laughs> so that's the thing. You know, if, if it's right for the story, it's right for the story. It's it's hard for a beginning writer to know that. It's hard to let go of those passages that you've written and say, no, these don't need to be in here. I've heard of a technique that I think would be very useful for a new writer, and that is Give your pages to someone and ask them to just make a mark in the margin when something confuses them or when they lost interest. They don't have to say why, what was wrong with the passage, anything, but just make a little mark in the margin. And, you know, if you see a lot of those, then you know your your story is going to need a little shaping because momentum and pace are so important in books. Something I do with my students um, when I teach creative writing is I will highlight all the instances of backstory in kind of the first 50 pages of whatever they submit to me. And I'll highlight it in this horrible lurid green so that when it goes back to them and they actually see this wall of color, they start to realize how much backstory they've put in, in the form of either exposition or musings or entire flashbacks. And I, I often say that if you're not is going to rely very heavily on the past compared to present day, it might be better to put those backstory chapters in completely separate chapters so that there's alternating chapters that deal entirely 
with flashbacks. And I think that's something you did as well, wasn't it, Karen? Yes. Um, the Marsh King's Daughter, it tells the story of Helena in two halves. There's the story set in the past where she's growing up, up to the age of 12, when she and her mother leave the marsh. And then there's a story in the present where she's a young mother of two little girls and her father escapes from prison near her home and she has to has to hunt him down to return him to prison. And initially, when, when my manuscript first went out on submission to editors, I had those chapters, every other one from the beginning. So, you know, present past, present past, present past, just like that. And the novel sold very well. We, we had a 12-way auction, which means 12 publishers wanted to buy the book. So it couldn't have been that flawed, right? But That's amazing and very rare. That's <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So my editor, when I started to work with him, his suggestion was to rearrange those opening chapters and not go into the past until we had firmly grounded the reader in the present. And the way he put it, which made a lot of sense to me, was we know why we're getting that story in the past, but the reader doesn't yet know. So we reworked that opening and really, to my astonishment, that first chapter that goes back into the past, which is critical to the whole story, doesn't happen until page 50. So I was concerned. I thought, really, after 50 pages, you can suddenly jump back into the past. And then from there on, it goes past, present, past, present. But obviously it works. You know, the book has done really well. And I agree with what my editor did. You know, I did the same thing with my next novel, The Wicked Sister. It's two timelines, two different characters. And I started out every other one, you know, because it felt normal to me. But we did a little rearranging again to stay longer in one characters that the main present day characters had before we went into the past. And so I, I think that's a good example of how you can include backstory. As you say, yes, if it's that major, if it's that important, you can have a section set in the past narrated by the same character. The main thing is to not confuse the reader. So, you know, your chapters have to be clearly labeled. In my new novel, The Wicked Sister, it's then and now, then and now. And also the character who's narrated, narrating it, their names are at the beginning. Because, you know, confusing the reader, that's a no, that's going to stop, call them up short and take them out of the story. So each novel is a little bit different. Certain novels, and mine are considered psychological suspense. So, you know, you would think you shouldn't have any backstory at all. A thriller just unfolds in the moment and, and you know, rolls forward. But it's very important to the book and uh, it works out. Because what the character is going through in the present day is, so much tied to to what happened to them in the past but I love that it only came at page 50 and for me that creates a kind of tension with the reader. So I referred earlier to how my agent is a very good editor himself and he's the one who in my first very first novel flagged all those instances of backstory similar to what you were talking about that you do for your students and when I took them out then that chapter really worked and so he gave me a quote for the article that I think is really important as far as how can you figure out what part of the backstory is crucial to the story and what's not? Jeff Kleinman says, backstory is the stuff the author figures the reader should know, not the stuff the character desperately wants to tell the reader. If it's critical to the character, it's critical to the reader, and then it's not backstory. So if it comes from the character, if it springs organically from the character, then it's fine to include something that happened in the past or a reference to the past. But if it's something that you as the author think, well, the reader's not going to understand this story unless they know this and this and this. You might even think of it as the author being too intrusive in the story and not letting the character tell their story. In my last book, one of my characters was a very 
emotionally traumatized person based on what happened in her past. She's a secret keeper. She's very closed off emotionally. Uh, And I narrated her in the first person, but you only find out about her past way, way deep into the book. And that's one of the things that readers said kept them turning pages. They wanted to know why she was the way she was, why she was so damaged and scarred and what had happened to her. And I hinted at things along the way, but I withheld a lot of that because I wanted that to be a kind of tension as well. So let's talk about timing being everything. And you have said that managing backstory in a novel is a matter of control. Uh, And I couldn't agree more with that. So let's talk about the timing and the control. Well, I think what happens is as the story progresses, it gets deeper right? It gets more meaningful. And so this is where instances of a backstory might be appropriate. There's a quote in the article from Garth Stein, who wrote The Art of Racing in the Rain, which was an amazingly successful book. And what he says about backstory is, rushing the backstory is a terrible waste. So you're wasting the good parts of the story if you if you try to get it out too soon. He says many writers try to get out too much too soon, but it's the tension between what the reader knows and what the reader doesn't know that propels them through the story. So I would say as a general rule, hold back as long as you can and see what happens. And if the story isn't making sense, then obviously you're you're holding back too much, especially for a newer writer. That's less likely to be the case than that they're putting too much in. And it might feel like I'm not saying enough, but try it without, I, I just can't encourage that more because it really works. It makes a very compelling story because that's why readers read. We want to know the who and the what and the why of the story. And that keeps us going. And this also ties into something else you said, which is about the reader's game of anticipation and prediction. So when a reader picks up a book, they're reading things and they are trying to figure things out for themselves. They're anticipating, especially in a thriller, and they're trying to predict the twists and turns. And I also feel that if you reveal too much too soon, you're kind of ruining that for the reader because it takes that game away from them. Yes. In the very first novel that got me my agent. I wrote this book in three months time and it was a first draft and I started querying agents because I thought I'm going to be published by a major publisher. So I need a literary agent. Obviously that's, that's a whole other topic, but I did everything wrong in the book you could possibly do. I did interest my agent and he wrote back and he said that he loved the premise. He thought my writing was strong, but the pacing and the momentum was completely off. I revealed the key piece of knowledge in chapter five. (laughs) And as soon as he said what he had seen in the story that was wrong, I could see that he was he was right about that. And so he signed me, even though the novel wasn't ready. I rewrote it three times under his, his direction over a three and a half year period until we were both so sick of working on it. We, we sent it out and it did not sell. But the next novel, Freezing Point, the one referenced in the article, did sell. And when reviews started to come out and they praised the pace and momentum, I thought, yes, I learned something. <laughs> so it's a process. And, and I, I hope that if somebody is listening to this and they realize that they've done it all wrong, you know, it loaded up their their story with backstory. Don't be discouraged because, you know, we aren't born knowing how to write. 
And even if we know in principle what to do, putting it into practice can be challenging. And too much backstory, that's the easiest fix in the world. You just get out your scissors and cut it out. I love what you've just said, because speaking to thriller writers like Liv Constantine, there that's the pen name for the two sisters who write together. Um, they wrote The Last Mrs. Parish. That was a big bestseller. And their first novel also never got published. You know, they worked on it and worked on it and worked on it, and it just was in a drawer somewhere. So the thing is, is that it feels like you've wasted all this time and you spend three years on it and it feels so wasted, but you are learning something in the process and you are gaining experience in the process. And sometimes a particular story can't be fixed, whatever the problem with it is, but the next story you begin, you are not going to make the same mistakes again. And that's always something for me that that's extremely, extremely encouraging. I am very passionate about sharing what I learned from having written my breakout book, The Marsh King's Daughter. It came basically after 20 years of writing. It shouldn't have to take that long. That's just how long it took me. I took a lot of risks with The Marsh King's Daughter. I tried a lot of writing techniques that I had not tried before, such as directly addressing the reader. Like I quoted, if I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. I had never written a story that had um, two timelines. The Marsh King's Daughter also has a fairy tale element, and how was I going to incorporate that? And as I've mentioned, it has a lot of flashbacks in it. And how was how were those going to be handled? So all those things were new to me as a writer. But I had a, a solid enough grounding from the books that I had written and had published before that I felt like it was time to try something new. When I sent the first chapter to my literary agent, I was so outside my comfort zone. I wasn't even sure if it worked. But I sent it to him and, you know, he loved it. He told me very much later that it was so good he did not think I had written. <laughs> oh my word it's okay he's been my agent for 20 years you know we we can be honest with each other like that but that's I think that's really important because I really stepped up my game so that's one thing that I, I want to encourage writers is if you're if you're not getting the results that you want you know whether you're not able to find a literary agent with your work or you're published but you know you're midlist and you want to break out of the midlist don't be afraid to try something new don't be afraid to change it up because you might find out that you have writing strengths that you never realized you did. And then the other thing is over that 20 year period, you know, with the early novels and so forth, I have to be honest, there were a lot of times that I thought of quitting writing because I thought, well, this is as good as it's going to get. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm good at other things and I'll just do other things. But I, I decided to give it one more shot. That's when I got the idea for The Marsh King's Daughter. And my writing career just exploded. Karen, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Well, there you have it. Two different takes on backstory. That's the thing about writing, guys. There are so many different ways to do it. There's so many different approaches. And what's important is that you find the method that's right for you. Why don't you pop me an email and let me know whose side you're on, Team Lisa Cron or Team Karen Dion? And here's a sneak preview of next week's episode. Then I started writing another book and I was like, wait a second, I really never got that first book published. Let me try harder. And so then I sent it out again. And this time it was like, you know, my first round of submissions, I got an offer from three agents. Wow. That and is like the Holy Grail. And <laughs> And did you change it a lot between the two or was it purely timing? No, it, it was timing. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting 
at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.